Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Bowie, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering. What a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Welcome to the Maximum Mom Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Erin LeCoque, who is was a Washington lawyer. That is how I knew her. And now she lives in New Mexico. Thanks so much, Erin, for joining me. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. I love having somebody with your experience in, you know, child welfare and just your experience as a young mom of a little one. I mean, lots of our listeners are kind of in your, you know, age group of dealing with a little one. And so I think it's so important to share your perspective. Wonderful. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what makes you a mom? Like, who are you at home with? Tell us about your family. So I'm a single mom at the moment, and I have a little girl, and she is not so little anymore. She's nine. She's almost 10. <laughs> and it's just the two of I have 50-50 custody uh, with her dad right now. So it's just me and her for a week, and then a week to kind of recombobulate a little bit, and then another week with her. And it's really fun with her right now. Last year was a little bit more challenging with her at home while I was working, but we've kind of gotten back into a better group now. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. I cannot believe she's almost 10. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Time really flies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They always are like, it goes fast. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, it goes so fast. It goes so fast. I mean, I really, I sometimes am stunned actually by how fast it goes. I mean, tell us a little bit about, I would love to hear just, I mean, what was your experience working from home? I mean, were you working from home while you were having her at home last year? Yeah. When the schools shut down in New Mexico and she was home for the very tail end of her second grade year, Mm-hmm. We were all trying to figure out, you know, I think everyone was in the same boat. We were trying to figure out how to make all of that work. And it didn't, you know, I think she got a lot of uh, TV time because we were trying to figure out how I could work from home. And then over the summer, we kind of got, you know, a little bit more of a, you know, kind of a daily routine down. And then when she started again in the fall, because I had my kind of summer routine down and my working routine, we were able to set up kind of a, I, Alexa, honestly, was kind of my best friend, because Alexa, like, you can program the, like, announcements, so you can say, you know, you know, it's 930, it's time for your meeting, and so Alexa would pop it and be like, Madeline, it's time for your meeting, and then she would know, okay, I'm gonna get on the computer and, and go, so if I were in a meeting or something, Alexa would kind of take over the parenting for me, which was really nice. Yeah, that was extremely helpful, extremely helpful. But still, you know, I have transcripts of depositions where her little voice pops in. (laughs) Mom, can I have a popsicle? (laughs) Yep, because that's where we are now. So that's now on the record. And that's fine. (laughs) I mean, what can you do if the head of New Zealand can deal with her child during a national address? I say you get to deal with your child during a deposition. Right. And that's, you know, that's just worn every bit. And it's not like I was in the same, you know, the only person either, which is, I think, kind of good that like, actually, I think it was really beneficial, like 
the whole pandemic obviously is really horrible, but one of the silver linings I think is that other people who are maybe not the primary caregivers had an opportunity to see what it's like to have to balance the work and the home with the kid popping in in your meetings and asking for popsicles. And, you know, and so I think other attorneys, especially, I don't want to generalize, but especially male attorneys who were maybe never had to deal with that suddenly are like, what? Like this kid's popping in and in the middle of my deposition and they have to figure out how to balance that. So, you know, no one really, no one was negative about it at all. Cause I think we were mostly all in the same boat. And if anything, I think people were more sympathetic to having a little one popping in and out of the screen. <laughs> well, I think you bring up such an amazing point. And I mean, it's one of the things that I think for me coming out of the pandemic, I mean, I really am becoming like kind of an evangelist on this. While I absolutely think a lot of people saw what it takes, I'm not convinced that those same people have all leaned in properly to take over their equitable share of that work and invisible work at home. Yes, I agree. I think a lot of people now are like, I'm so glad they're back at school because I don't do that anymore. I'm like, you know, that work doesn't actually go away. (laughs) It surely doesn't. And I I mean, I think, and I mean, people who see me on social media know that I'm like such a fan of Eve Rodsky's book on fair play and what it can do for a couple and a family, a divorced family, even a single mom. I have to tell you, it's quite helpful. I mean, seeing all the work that goes into life, including child rearing and looking at this stack of a hundred cards, I mean, it's daunting to see what is being done. And I mean, I know, and you know, that women are doing the bulk of that work in many, many homes. And the economic impact on women, it's wrong on so many levels. And you see the number of women who've come out of the workforce during COVID is striking to me. Yes. And that is so concerning to me. And I don't know exactly how to fix it, but I have to tell you, I'm a little bit on a mission about this because as somebody with older children who, you know, I'm kind of past like the phase where you are with a young one, you're figuring out, you know, popsicles, transportation, getting into Zoom school, all those things. I do not even see how you all did it. I mean, I literally think we have this generation of absolute heroes in moms. And I mean, I just marvel at all of you. I really do. Thank you. Well, we've just got to fix it because it's going to be a burden that's too big to bear. And that's my worry. I mean, I'm really worried about the mental health of a lot of women who I know and just see or acquaintances or, you know, just in the world, you know, like in lawyer groups, you'll see these people that are just, I mean, they're exhausted. Yes. Yeah. I think I read an article today saying, you know, it's okay to be exhausted. And I'm like, I know it's okay, but like, what are we going to actually do about it? Because it's, it may be okay, but it's not sustainable. <laughs> it's not. I mean, and it shouldn't be sustainable. Right. Like, I mean, are we really bringing our best selves to anything, to parenting, right. to our work, to our, our hobbies? I mean, do people even have hobbies? Because <laughs> do you know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that's something actually Eve has written a book. I don't know the exact title, but it's about unicorn spaces and it's about hobbies and, you know, finding time for those creative outlets. And I think it's coming out in December. And I really look forward to that because, I mean, I think the things that we give up in this quest to do our 100 cards, while many partners are, you know, on the golf course for four hours or... Yeah. hunting for a weekend or, or yeah. 
you know, or just being there alone time all day. I mean, I I think we've got to recalibrate this and make it make sense. And I mean, my hope is to bring enough men in to talk about it and to understand how their lives would be so much better if their partners, their spouses, their wives, whatever, were happy and actually joyful rather than seething with rage and resentment. Yes. Yeah. But we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit about, I want to talk about your work when you were here in Washington. I mean, you did a lot of work with children and, you know, just dealing with dependency. I mean, tell us about your work here in Washington and what you did and really how that has shaped what you're doing in your career. Okay. When I first started, so I'm in law school, so I've only been a a practicing lawyer for a little over five years now. And at the very tail end of law school, we took a clinic to help incarcerated parents. And that really stood out to me because I think at that point, my daughter was seven weeks old when I started law school. And so I think it changed everything when I was going through school and kind of looking at everything through a lens of, of a parent. And I never thought of being a parent who's incarcerated for whatever reason that just never crossed my mind. And so that clinic name really stood out to me. And that was when I was introduced to the dependency child welfare system, particularly, you know, as it relates to incarcerated parents. And so we were given our very first case in that clinic representing a woman as she was in going through her criminal trial with her children and then how, you know, trying to see if we could work with, you know, in conjunction with the criminal side to help her have a better chance of keeping her children through the whole process. And so that was, you know, learning all of that law and all of that, it was just being kind of like my whole life I've been in this boat on the ocean. And it was the first time ever that I was under the water looking to see what people actually have to deal, like a lot of people have to deal with and how they function. And I think the idea that you know, the state can come and terminate your parental rights was a brand new idea that I'd never heard of. And it was horrifying. I thought, you know, this is is the worst thing I've ever heard of. And I want to, you know, work as hard as I can to try to help a lot of these, you know, as many people as I can that are in the system. And so after we graduated from law school, a friend and I started a firm specifically so that we could get a contract with the Office of Public Defense in Washington, representing parents, in the child welfare systems, we could keep going. So we started with eight cases between the two of us. And I think by the time I left the firm, we had, I don't know, 140 maybe. <laughs> we grew really fast. <laughs> and, and it was a lot, it was very fast. It was a very steep learning curve that was a little bit, I, I guess I, I'm glad that it moved so quickly um, and that we were so busy all the time because I think it didn't give me a chance to kind of sit with a lot of this stuff and really let it kind of permeate because I think that that would have been much harder. And then during that time, I went through my own divorce. And so that kind of my experience going through my own divorce and the experience that a lot of these, my clients were having were kind of parallel, like fighting, you know, for the rights to see your children and trying to overcome these barriers that are put in place specifically for women, you know, to have your children, to have this like basic fundamental right that nobody really, you know, people think is just impermeable and it it is not it is fragile and um I think that was just so it was just under that fragility was underscored for me both in my own divorce and in the in the work that I was doing yeah well actually I think of it as I mean I think of women's rights 
with regard to their children as Swiss cheese. I mean, yeah. there are some serious holes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it is stark sometimes. I mean, how things happen. And that, I mean, especially in dependency, I, you know, you just see so many things where, you know, the chicken and the egg, like, you know, the person doesn't have a car, you know, they can't afford a car because they're making sure that the family has food, a roof over their head and whatever, then their children are taken away. They can't get to their services because they don't have the car and they're going to lose their job if they spend all their time on their bus. I mean, you know, it's this Right. Absolutely. And then they're penalized because they don't have a job to support exactly. their kids. So they can't get them back. So it, yeah. It's yeah. such a circuitous, I mean, yeah. yeah, I have found it to be wildly frustrating <laughs> at times. <laughs> I mean, to watch the runaround and the thought of when you see the services that people are expected to do, and then you get down into the down and dirty of what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it is a full-time job. Yes, yes. And put in some Seattle traffic, some, you know, public transportation issues, appointments getting canceled. I mean, your kid getting sick and a little homeschooling during COVID. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, it's been pretty wild to see. Well, how do you feel like your work with children in in that system has prepared you for the work you're doing now in New Mexico, working in the attorney general's office, though on the civil side of things? I think my public defender-ness is always there. It always, it creeps up um, a lot. I think, you know, the state has an immense amount of power and I, I really see that. And I think it's very important that we as state as the state, um, and I, so to clarify, because I don't want I don't want anyone to think that I'm now on the other side. I do not work for CYFD in any way. <laughs> I wouldn't. I would. I couldn't do it. But so just in just general, you know, state kind of civil litigation. One of the things we do is administrative prosecutions of professional licenses, mm-hmm. and I think seeing the power of not anywhere near you know, the, the child welfare system, but, you know, the state has a, the ability to remove somebody's, you know, professional license and say, you don't have your, you know, you, you were a psychologist and you're not anymore, or at least you're, you know, you can't practice here in New Mexico and they have to have such a good reason for it. And I get really frustrated if I see people trying to like kind of go through the motions without actually doing it, because that's what frustrated me so much when I was on the other side is like, you are the state and you have an obligation to do X, Y, and Z, and you need to do it right. And you have to follow your own policies and you cannot, you know, cut corners because this is somebody's livelihood. And I think oftentimes my uh, colleagues will, will be like, "Ah, and I'm like, no, we are the state and we do it right. (laughs) And if we lose, then we lose. Like it's not, you know, and I think that that's, you know, it's nowhere near the level of kind of permanency as it used to be. But I think that that has certainly, you know, I think that the people who work within the state organizations like that really just have to remember that they have so much power and it is such a responsibility to make sure that they follow the procedures that are in place, you know, even though the child welfare system is the worst thing ever. Like, you know, I think our lives as defense attorneys would have been a lot easier if they would just follow their own policies, first of all. Well, you first you got to read them, girl. You got to know they exist. I used to love going to an FTDM and I'm like, now what about this thing right here that y'all wrote? Like, 
you know, this little thing that, and yeah. you know, it's like, oh, details, yeah. Elise. Right. I mean, minor details. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, you know, I have women, I, so I have, I have two, there are two prosecutions that kind of come to mind. One is from a psychologist who was running a pill mill. And I see in his victims, essentially, my former clients. And I'm like, you know, it's not, it's one thing that you're just making money off these people, but you don't even think about the consequences of what it is you're doing, about the parents who are losing children, because you have them hooked on Xanax, you trying to help them, but they're not like you are, you know, have leave this destruction in your wake and you don't care because you're just making $175 off every prescription you sell. And then another psychologist who was supposed to psychologist who was supposed to be working with women in who are, you know, justice involved women coming out of prison trying to get a leg up and then he's sexually assaulting them. And I'm like, what <sighs> like you don't even know. You don't even know the harm that you were doing, not just to these women, but to their families and their, you know, their children and their their whole system. Like they're, you know, struggling trying to get themselves back and their children back. And like, I don't know. So I think oh. it has made me much more empathetic just across the board. Absolutely. Even though I'm not actually doing that work anymore. Well, and it's interesting. I just love how you bring up the state and the power they have. I mean, in my mom, you know, rest in peace. If she could hear me now discussing these things on a podcast, she'd be like, at least did I not teach you? There's certain things we don't talk about. <laughs> I mean, the death penalty. When I was in law school, I was super interested in the death penalty work and constitutional law around the death penalty and worked with the Death Penalty Resource Center. And I have always felt so strongly that I mean, without regard to all the, you know, morality issues around the death penalty or things like that, the inequity in the power between the state's yeah. prosecution and what is available to the defense, both in oftentimes experience of the attorney who's mm -hmm. possibly being appointed and never touched like a felony, much less a murder, much less a, you know, a death penalty case but they don't have the resources to hire experts and do the things that need to be done to get a trial ready. And to me, like any verdict that came out of this inequitable system is so contrary to our democracy. Like I struggle so much with the inequity between the state and the defense as far as the purse strings behind it. Yeah. And I just, it makes no sense to me how it can seem fair. I mean, and I, I don't care. I mean, I'm so, I just, even if the defense, you know, turns out they're hundred percent guilty, like the process has to be even, it has to be evenly staffed, evenly funded for our system to at all pretend to work. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So that I often, I mean, just independency was just always like, could we maybe put some of the money that we're giving the foster parents to the biological parents? Right. <laughs> I mean, I was, was always kind of like, hmm, could we look at the economics of this, please? Yeah. And yeah, it was always a struggle. The Guild is an insanely productive community of lawyer entrepreneurs with a growth mindset who share their collective genius and hold each other accountable to take their careers and businesses to the next level. But in 2021, we are upping the game. In addition to exclusive access to the group, FaceTime with the two of us, discounted pricing for live events, and front seat exposure to live recording and podcasts and video, we are mapping out for members the exact growth playbook with our new program, Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships and experience content specifically designed to complement your plan for growth. 
For a limited time only, the Maximum Lawyer and Minimum Time program will be offered for free to all new Guild members. Join us by going to maxlawguild.com. Well, how, I mean, I would assume like it's kind of traumatic sometimes to work in a practice area where you do see, I think, a lot of inequity, a lot of, I mean, real hard struggle. I mean, how have you through the years dealt with, I mean, you know, I hate to sound melodramatic, but I mean, vicarious trauma really from the work that you've done. I, uh, I'm going to try not to cry in this part of the, the story. I had to, that's why I, I can't do it right now. I had to take a step back because my cup was empty and yeah. I didn't have anything to give back. But I, my very, that was the very last trial I did in Washington. And it, it was the end. Like it, I couldn't, it, it just kind of broke everything that was, right. that was left in me because of this inequity piece. And really, really briefly, it was a mom who had four four kids, full siblings, you know, one mom, one dad, four kids, mm-hmm. two babies who were in foster care. And we all know, you know, those of us that do this work, babies are super cute and adoptable and, you know, super easy. And then two older kids, eight and 10, when it started in like 10 and 13, you know, two or three years had passed right. by the time it was done. So 10 and 13 when it was done. And uh, they were with, actually, after a lot of work, they ended up with a, a family member in a different state. And we had tried that the youngest baby was born during this process. So we had the three on, on an, on an mm-hmm. ICPC to try to get them all out of state with this family member who was a therapeutic foster parent. So like who was totally capable of taking care right. of all of them. And then the, the department dropped that youngest kid, like, whoops, we didn't put him on the ICPC. Sorry, but it's been, it's been approved for the other two kids and they're going and we're done. We're not going to talk about it anymore. And then they filed for termination on the younger two. And so the termination trial was just on the younger two. And so we tried to get the brothers to intervene with, you know, the idea that like, okay, maybe the parents are not where they need to be, but like, you cannot separate these boys. Like what have the older boys done to deserve losing their brothers? Like, it's just appalling to me that they, we even had to have these discussion when we had a family member willing to take all four of them. The parents were willing to relinquish all four as long as they stayed together and were with this family member. And we had, I couldn't believe the number of hoops we had to go through to try to get it. The foster parents came into court at one point. I, I had filed a motion for a, a visit with them. Mm-hmm. They said, if you grant this motion, we will not take the kids back. And I was like, you cannot let the foster parents hold the court hostage like this. Clearly, this isn't a good position for them. This isn't a good placement for them. And of course, the court's like, well, I, I can't disrupt the placement. And I'm like, you are letting them. Wow. Like, this is just, I, I felt like I was, you know, taking crazy pills. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and then the trial, I had an expert there to talk about, you know, sibling bonds and sibling relationships totally. and how vital that is, especially for children of color who are, you know, need to have the sibling relationship, but also that cultural relationship and how, you know, and the court wouldn't let her testify. It was irrelevant. And I'm like, how many kids did not, this did not end, did it, with two kids going? The having... very last thing I did, so I knew we were going to lose the trial. Oh my it was God. my Hail Mary, like, last thing I did, we got a new judge oh, in good. the dependency court, and you may know who I'm talking about. She was lovely, and I was like, if anyone is going to grant a motion to change placement without anything else, like, I'd Hail Mary pass, it's going to be her, and so I filed it, and I and I left, <laughs> and, like she, so she ordered the department to do the ICPC for the babies, which they did 
very begrudgingly and it took forever. And finally she kept doing check-ins. So this motion was pending for like a year and a half. Finally, she was like, I have to do this. Like I have to grant it. I have to move them because these brothers have to stay together because that is what the law says. The law says you keep the families together. And even though the rights have been terminated for the parents, we were like, you cannot separate these boys. Like that's just the worst thing I can possibly think of. And so that was the like happy ending of this is at least they're together. And then even though we appealed the termination, you know, on the basis of the unbelievable trial that I had to do and the unbelievable amount of evidence that I was not allowed to present, even that and the court of appeals badly affirmed the termination, you know, in a published opinion. So that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think we need stronger sibling laws in Washington. Oh yeah. That's certainly something that, you know, has come out of that, but It was just like the end of all of that. I was like, I cannot Mm -mm. do this anymore. I have to take a step back because the unbelievable injustice that happened in that case to those parents, to those kids, to the, and I wasn't a huge fan of the foster parents, but even to the foster parents, somebody said you can adopt these babies. They were planning on that. They lost them, you know, like trauma all around because the department didn't do what it was supposed to do initially. And then now, you know, now they're terminating on the, the older ones. And they're, they're like, you know, well, why doesn't she, she said in, you know, in 2018, she'd relinquish to all four. Why, why would she fight this now? And I'm like, if you had done this in 2018, when she had said it, we would have avoided all of this and we'd be exactly where you want them to be today. Like how funny it is that you're like, this is the best placement for all of them. Let's keep the brothers together. And I'm like, I can't, like, I want to fight you just on principle. (laughs) Oh, I, I, I'm kind of speechless and stunned. I can't imagine the trauma and emotional just burden that was for you. I mean, I'm really sorry you went through that as, I mean, seriously, trauma all around. Yeah. And when you put that in the mix with trying to parent, trying to co-parent, trying to work, move to another state, get another job. I mean, and do your 100 cards of things, your invisible labor. I mean, it's no wonder your cup was completely empty. I mean, it not only was empty, it had a big hole in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I mean, this, we've got to do better and figuring out how to do better. I mean, the systems are so broken, you know, for that to be possible is kind of stunning, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. It takes the toll. Like those of us that love the work and really wanted to do the work, doing, going through my divorce where I was having, you know, they weren't judges, but people in authority say, you know, like you're not doing as good of a job as you should be as a mom. And therefore, like, I don't know about you having, you know, you know, custody of your child when I'm like, all I do is try to save families and keep them together. And like, I have to, you know, like, it's just, it's just, it's just massively unfair like across the board. Well, the choices that we face are just, I mean, they're not choices. And when people tell me, well, women are choosing to leave the workforce, I'm like, they're choosing to leave the workforce over maybe not, you know, doing something drastic to themselves because of their severe mental health problems that have been made horrendous by what has gone on. I mean, I think the pandemic has brought this invisible workload to the forefront and even in our professional lives. I mean, you just have the most perfect example. 
even in your professional life as an attorney, they're doing that work. You are caregiving. Yes. And it is, I mean, and I know, I mean, so well, having done the exact same work as you in this arena. I mean, it is, it is pretty, I mean, it is just heart wrenching at times. Yeah. And I think it's just that, that injustice, just kind of across the board that those in power use that power to punish women or, you know, families who don't kind of comport with the idea of, you know, this is what a normal family is supposed to look like. And it just feels, it just feels horrifically punitive across the board. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, I'm so glad your story had a happy ending. (laughs) That was going to be really, really sad. That was, that was, yeah. I I remember watching that, that hearing on Zoom and just sobbing like oh I, yeah just like this huge amount of relief <laughs> just like, oh absolutely yeah. absolutely well and I mean the impact that you had and your firm had I mean on those siblings you know it's it's life-changing you know for these kids to be able to grow up and know each other and learn from each other and you know have that relationship I mean the social science tells us the sibling relationship is the most important one I mean, it's the longest. It's the longest, sure. yeah. 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 And for children, especially with those age differentials, I mean, those older children will play a huge mentoring type role, likely with the younger children. Yeah. I mean, it can be really powerful. I can't imagine the trauma of the older children thinking that these babies would be adopted away. I mean, the whole thing, I'm, okay, I'm going to try to let go of that. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> oh, Wow. Aaron, I cannot tell you, I mean, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate you being willing to talk to me and I mean, and to really be vulnerable about, you know, how hard that work is and how hard it was, I mean, for you to really have to kind of make a conscious decision to step back and who knows what your life will hold, obviously, but I mean, to give yourself that space to fix your cup, you know, (laughs) and to put some putty in the hole at least and, you know, get it where it can get all filled up again. I mean, what are you doing now to fill your cup? Do you have things you're doing like either hobbies? I don't know, maybe some of the, I think of like the Ariana Huffington, like thrive, (laughs) getting better sleep or, you know, tell us what are you doing to help this? Yeah. I think it's spending a lot of time with my daughter, like really good quality time to kind of heal both of us. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, those years with the work I was like the really hard work I was doing plus the end of the divorce plus we had to move we had to leave Washington as a result of the divorce and all of that just requires an immense amount of healing and so we are we eat a lot of cheesecake and I don't care (laughs) I think cheesecake is like a health food for sure (laughs) I mean it's like carrot cake in my mind that's a vegetable so I'm good with it (laughs) Yeah. And we just, you know, like, well, we just spend as much when I have her, I tried, she is my number one focus. And I try really hard to, you know, be like, we are going to bring it to you and me and we're going to get through this together. And, you know, just to, I I just feel like us being together and traveling together and, you know, just spending huge amounts of time together before she, you know, hits the teenage years and doesn't want to is very healing for but like it fills up my cup again I think it's healing for her I think that kind of is just a it's a really good recover like I feel like we've run like massive marathons and we just need to like sit and recover for a while 
Um, and it's awesome. been two, we've been in New Mexico now for two and a half years. And so it's been a while and things are, I finally feel like I'm getting good night's sleep. <laughs> finally, oh. <laughs> like, You know, and we sleep, you know, a lot and, right. we, you know, take lots of walks and, and try to exercise and just finally, actually, that's, that's the first thing. I've never been super active just because there wasn't time right now. And so now, you know, I've made it a goal to run a 5k last year and I made it a goal to run a 10k this year. And, um, and then she's been running, you know, she'll run up, she's in a running club at school. So like we'll run together and that we're getting healthier and stronger together, which I think is. That is awesome. Oh, I love that. I love that you're running together. I found running to be so healing when I was dealing with my own divorce stuff. I used to love to run. I mean, run, I could run for hours and I loved it. I was like, I was like, I'm going on a three hour run. And I just, I thought I was the strongest human on the planet to be able to run that long. Yeah. It's amazing how strong you feel during that. Yeah. I know. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to watch your journey from afar. I love seeing what you're doing there in New Mexico and seeing things with you and your daughter. I just think it's amazing. And the dependency world here in Washington misses you, but we we are very happy that you are doing awesome where you are. And so I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and a great week. And thanks again for joining me today. Thank you so much, Elise. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Bye, Erin. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom Podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.